Hey, Bree, come and record the Drift ad. Today's episode is brought to you by Drift Outfitters in downtown Toronto, Ontario. Drift Outfitters is your source for all things fly fishing. From waders and boots to threads and feathers, Drift has it all. Check in on their website for the latest updates and policies regarding shopping during the pandemic. Curbside pickup for your online and phone orders is a great way to get the gear you need. And they're shipping free across Canada on orders over 100 bucks. Visit driftoutfitters.com to learn more. Hello and welcome to another episode of SoFly. It is uh, January, the end of January, and we're recording another show. Uh, my name is Mitch, and we've got Aldo. Hello. We've got Yilma. Hello, everyone. We're back recording. We're super excited today to be chatting with uh, with somebody, uh, well, we're very excited to be chatting with because we've been uh, planning this one for a little while. Um, Greg French is one of Australia's best-known fishing personalities. He spends most of his time in Tasmania and New Zealand, but travel, travels widely and is a regular contributor to premier magazines such as Fly Life. Um, Greg's guidebook, Trout Waters of Tasmania, most recently updated in 2011, is widely considered to be the Bible of trout fishing in Tasmania. Um, and his literary, literary nonfiction title, Frog Call, which was, came out in 2002, showcased a writing style that reached well beyond the angler audience. Um, Frog Call was followed by Artificial in 2008, Menagerie of False Truths in 2010, and Water Color in 2018. Since then, Greg has written about global de- destinations, notably in The Imperiled Cutthroat and The Last Wild Trout, both in 2016. Um, Greg's also worked with Gin Clear Media, co-writing and narrating the fly fishing documentaries Hatch and Predator and Leviathan. Um, if you haven't seen those, check them out. They're amazing. We're super excited to be chatting today with Greg. Greg, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, yeah, man. You are uh, one heck of an accomplished author. Just reading that bio, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, it's one of those things that you sort of get into accidentally, really. So, yeah. well, definitely excited to hear all about how you accidentally got into writing some incredible books. Uh, but uh, first of all, where where are you calling from today? Okay, we're calling from Hobart and Tasmania. Hobart's the capital city, so Tasmania is an island. Um, I don't know what I can compare it to in Canada, but it's exactly the same size as Tiradore Fuego, about 65,000 square kilometres. Okay, right on. Um, We're temperate. Um, Half of our island is uh, wilderness, and in fact, most of that is world heritage. And it's the only world heritage area in the world, I believe, with wilderness in the title, Mm -hmm. Tasmanian uh, wilderness world heritage area. Um, And the rest of the land here is... Uh, either production forest or rural. Our capital city, Hobart, where I live on the outskirts, has just got 200,000 people and the entire population is uh, only half a million. So amazing. Fairly laid back, crazy place to be. <laughs> yeah. Well, we <laughs> definitely can't wait to talk about Tasmania. I know it's, you know, nighttime here. It's January. It's the winter for us. It's freezing cold and we're stuck inside because of COVID. So it's really nice to be able to kind of escape and, and talk about uh, warm, sunny Tasmania. Oh, yeah, definitely. Have you been out a lot recently? Um, I have been out to a little place called uh, St. Clair Lagoon last week. And St. Clair Lagoon is sort of epitomizes Tasmanian fly fishing in that it's a lake about, oh, golly, I don't know. Let's say it's a kilometre diameter. Mm-hmm. And basically you can wade every square centimetre of it. The water is crystal clear and it is absolutely chock-a-block full of medium-sized brown trout, oh, you know, fish in the... Sort of two to three pound range, yeah, with a few big ones. 
And so you just wander around this lake looking for fish exactly as saltwater fly fishermen do for bone fish. That's and awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We also, it also has uh, really good beds of Isoetes weeds, which are fantastic for um, mayflies. You have a black spinner mayfly, mm. and the fish just leap, you know, they yeah. need to clear the water sometimes. And it's also good for blue damselflies and their, their leapers as well. So, mm. on a typical really good day, like the other day when we were up there, we you would land 20 fish, maybe get another 20 fish deep to fly, and Oh, wow. yeah. That's a pretty good day. It's good. It's world class fishing. There's no doubt about that. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah we've so seen I... the. Go ahead, go ahead, Alda. No, no, I was going to say what you were going to say, Yellow. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. When when Alda sent me the pictures, uh, the first thing I thought was like, wow, it's just like saltwater sight fishing for brown trout, right? And yeah, just, and it's yeah. funny because here I'm not the much saltwater fly because I just haven't exhausted all the trout fishing possibilities. And when I was a little boy, I read about <laughs> read Joe Brooks's. Um, Trout fishing. It was written in 1970. I actually stole it from the library. I borrowed <laughs> it from the library as an 11-year-old boy, and I loved it so much with all these exotic American trouts that I just mm. couldn't bear to return it. So I, I um, went back. What happened at our school was a really little country school, and the um, the library was a mobile library that would come around once a month, and it would drop books off. They'd be used for a month, and then it would come around again, drop a new lot off, and all the old yeah. books would be taken back. Yeah. So this book, if I returned it, I was never, ever going to see it again. <laughs> right. so I said to the librarian, hey, um, I've lost it. I don't know where it is. I'll yeah. pay for it. Yeah. Um, and she just looked at me over the top of a little wire in glasses. She knew <laughs> I was lying. But I still wasn't going to give it back. Yeah. If necessary, I'd steal it again, actually. <laughs> so you don't still have the book. I was going to ask if you still have it. Yeah, I've still got the book. Still got the book. Oh, right on. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, so that was good. I forgot where the thread was going, by the way, but <laughs> that's okay. Remember, we can pick it up again. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so I'm guessing that by that trout season's in full swing, then down there in Tasmania. Yeah, yeah, man, that's we're again super jealous, super super yeah. jealous. So the thing with the trout season here in Tasmania is particularly in we don't have that thing that happens in America where you have a big, um, you know, snowfall and then everything's obliged to hatch in two weeks. Right. Um, right. That just doesn't happen. It's pretty benign weather. So our mayfly, well, start at the beginning of the season, which is um, spring. Um, the first thing that happens is we get lots of rain in spring. And um, Tasmania is predominantly lake fishing. It's sight fishing in lakes. We've got lots of lovely streams, but yeah. the lake fishing is so good and the trout hunting is so good that most locals um, prefer lake fishing and our lakes have bigger fish. So the first thing that happens in spring is that um, the lake levels will come up and you'll get worms and frogs in the shallows and the trout move into the shallows with all their fins out of the water, mm -hmm. oh. call it tailing, and you just wander along the lake shore looking for a, a fin and wow. get, try to get a fly in front of it. And then as things warm up a little bit, we get our first hatches um, and in the high country, you know, we've got a big central plateau in Tasmania, and that's about, I guess, it would average a thousand meters above sea level. Okay. And that country, the hatches start as early as November, which is sort of the middle of spring, and they will go all the way through into early uh, early autumn. So we can get mayfly hatches that will last four or five months, hmm. rather than that sort wow. of big blitz that you have. Yeah. Um, 
But the other thing we have is crystal clear water. So even when fish aren't rising, what you do see is um, you just see the fish moving around in the water. And the skill here is trout hunting. It's actually learning to see the fish and then learning to predict where the fish will be in the right. lake at any given time so that you see more than you would if you're just going to any old random shore. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, well, that sounds like kind of like a quite technical, can be quite quite technical fishing then, quite different Yeah, fishing. but it's, it's, it's a good fishing style in that it's very, very easy to get people addicted to it yeah. because right. particularly when you start off, it's mainly brown trout fishing and brown trout are, the, you know, certainly the, the least easy to catch of the trout. Right. But um, on a given day, we can show people, um, you know, literally dozens of fish cruising around in front of them. And the, the big problem is never the fly. The big problem is always casting ability. So right. you just need right. to get that fly one metre in front of the fish and you're in with a really good chance. Yeah. And right. when people don't have a good day, that's because the fly isn't going exactly where it needs to go. Mm-hmm. And so they can see the problem. This, yeah. It's not as if, you know, I'm sitting here throwing a lure out into yeah. nothingness, just hoping for something to grab it. Yeah. You can see the fish, you have a good day. If you're not catching fish, you understand the problem and you go home and you practice. So, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a, um, quite a good place to guide for that reason as well. Mm-hmm. That right. People never get bored. And if people only catch one fish or no fish for the day, they still generally had a really good day anyway. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's awesome. Well, that's wicked. Um, okay, so you've obviously had this amazing career writing about fishing and fish and destinations. But before we get into all of that in the writing career, um, let's just go back, you know, right to the beginning when your passion for fly fishing began. So how did you get into fly fishing? How did that start? I have a passion for nature. I have a passion for wild animals. And that goes back, um, I've got a really, really good childhood memory. I come from a family that um, has is riddled with autism. And uh, apparently that's why I have this good memory. But I can remember back to when I was two or three years old and I would collect um, postage stamps and uh, matchbox labels yeah. with wild animals on them and when we went to school we started school um, at six years old here in Tasmania mm-hmm. um, a couple of the women's magazines used to have just before school started labels to put on your exercise books <laughs> and I remember my sister my, or my brother wanted all the cars and planes and stuff like that yeah and my sister wanted all the farm animals because they're cute you know little lambs yeah. and little puppies yeah. and things like that <laughs> but I was only ever interested in wild animals and, um, you know, I wanted the, the toucans and the kangaroos and the elephants and the walruses and things like that. And so my interest in fishing just comes about through that interest in nature. Um, and what I loved about the fishing that I did where I grew up was that you walk along a riverbank and you could see everything that was happening underneath the water. Mm. And the reason I got into fly fishing Eventually, um, like most people here, I started off with spinning rod, and nobody yep. else used. Of course, nobody fly fish, so that you couldn't get you couldn't get any lessons, and you didn't have any mentors in your family or extended friends to help you. Mm-hmm. So you start off with a spinning rod because it's easy, and what you would see is all these fish that would not eat a lure. And so then you get into fly fishing, and the great thing about fly fishing is that to do it really well you do have to understand exactly what the fish are doing. And also, if you've got a naturally um, scientific mind like mine, just looking and wondering what's going on mm-hmm. is not enough. You have to test your theories. It's just the scientific method in action. So 
Um, you know, you can look at a, a fish cruising along a, a flat and it's eating something and there's schools of bait fish there and you assume that the fish is eating bait fish, but you cannot get these fish to eat a bait fish pattern. Yeah. Um, but so you kill a fish and you look in its gut and you find that it's full of mayfly nymphs. Right. And then the question is, why do they prefer mayfly nymphs when there's so much bait fish around? Yeah, right. Um, and so you learn this stuff and then you try and apply that knowledge to a different lake or a different shore. And then you wonder why the mayflies are on a shore at a particular time. And you wonder whether it's to do with the substrate or whether it's to do with the wind. And then over time, you build up a, a big knowledge of what's going on. And when I was a young fella, um, you're so excited about all the stuff that you're learning. You're sort of like a new lover or something. You just want to talk to everybody about it. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, just so you're keen to let other people know and also so keen to pick everybody else's brain. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's a great answer. I mean, I, I love yeah. that. Fly fishing really is like the ultimate activity for somebody who loves nature. Because to your point, you have to know so much more about just throwing a lure out, right? You have to understand the bugs and the cycle there and the life cycle of, you know, what fish are into. And it's really, you know, is that what you kind of fell in love with then, I guess, when you first got into fly fishing was just this whole kind of holistic thing? Yeah, to be honest with you, the very first thing I fell in love with with Tasmania was exploration. So my um, intro into writing is really quite accidental and it's a product of just um, a fortunate starting my fishing career at a very fortunate point in time in Tasmania. Right. So when I started in the mid-1970s, there were, well, first of all, there was no internet. So you couldn't mm-hmm. just type anything up and get an answer. Yeah. So you have to look for books. There were no books. Right. There were a couple of um, publications that purported to be guides, but they were far from comprehensive and they were wildly inaccurate. And they used to frustrate me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and because Tasmania, so much of Tasmania is wilderness, um, there was just no information on anything in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. So you would just start walking up rivers from lake to lake and going to places that at the time I thought nobody else had been to and you would discover stuff mm-hmm. and then you would write it down. And then eventually I went to, I should actually tell you about our best place in Tasmania. We yeah. have in our central plateau, we have a wilderness area called the Western Lakes. Right. And the Western Lakes is basically flattish country Um one half of it is moorland and the other half of it is stunted eucalypt forest. But the lakes are all gouged out by an ice sheet, so they're predominantly shallow, full of clear water. There are no walking tracks, but you just pick, pick up any route you want to go and you can walk for, that's probably, I guess, 30 kilometres both ways, wow. east, west, north, south. Yeah. And just go to wherever you want. It's pretty big. Um, and at the time, there was no information on that. And so you walk up the way I... I approached it was you would walk up a river system from lake to lake. There are, depending on how small you want to go to define a lake, anywhere between 1,000 and 4,000 lakes in this area. Wow. So you'd follow up a river system and you'd go from lake to lake to lake. And you would notice things. You would notice changes in substrate. And you would notice that some lakes had little fish and some lakes, and lots of little fish, and some lakes had just giant fish, 10-pound plus fish. And trout, we're talking trout, fish. right? Like mostly all trout. Yeah, they're brown trout. That's so crazy. Um, <laughs> it is crazy. And, yeah. and none of these lakes were ever stocked. So um, Tasmania was stocked with brown trout, obviously. They were in the Southern Hemisphere. Right. But they were put in lowland rivers, and they just worked their way up into these systems through a process of natural recruitment and invasion. Yeah, That's um, so interesting. Yeah. That's yeah. And so you would 
then you would find lakes that apparently had no fish in them and you would wonder why they have no fish in them. And generally it was a um, substantial barrier like a waterfall. Right. Sometimes not quite so substantial and you'd wonder why, mm-hmm. you know, what was going on there biologically. Mm-hmm. Um, but you do end up with a, 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 you know, a body of knowledge that you realise that nobody else has. And when I started off, you'd look at, like there are a couple of walking tracks um, so I started off on the walking tracks and you would get to a lake and you'd fish it for a week only to learn that there were no fish in that lake. Mm-hmm. And then you'd bump into some local walking past who would say, oh, gee, guys, there's no fish in this lake, but if you walk two kilometres down the, the valley, you'll find a lake that's full of rainbow trout. Mm-hmm. And so you'd walk down there and you'd think, if only I'd known that, you know, yeah. I'm 18 yeah. years old. I'm excited. I want to catch fish. And I spent the wasted a, a week on a lake with no fish in it. Yeah. Um, and then you'd wonder why rainbow trout, you know, what was the history mm-hmm. behind that? They had to be put there. It's above a waterfall. Um, generally it's brown trout in Tasmania. Yeah. Um, and then you would get little clues when you were talking to people and you'd eventually track down the person who actually put them in there by airdrop. Right. Um, right. And that they were ripping yarns. Every time you talk to these old hands, mm-hmm. they were ripping yarns. So with the with the Lake Meston story where the rainbows were, it was a fishing club got permission from the government to drop rainbow trout into this lake. But on the day that they, and this was in the mid-1950s, on the day that they flew the plane out, the weather was atrocious. <laughs> and so there was a clearing and they thought, beauty, Lake Adelaide was the destination. That's Lake Adelaide below us. And they dropped these bags of fry into the lake. <laughs> and then for several years, everyone went to Lake Adelaide and didn't catch a fish. Yeah. It took a while to twig that perhaps we've dropped them in the wrong lake, <laughs> which, which they had. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Yeah. That's so funny. That's funny. So how long did you kind of explore the area of Tasmania and this, this area uh, before writing the book? Well, okay. So... You've got to imagine that I'm 18 and I think I know a lot more than I actually do. <laughs> right. and I've never written before. Yeah. And so writing is very hard. I've got a lot to say and um, I don't really know how to say it succinctly. Yeah. So it was, it was, um, it was quite a struggle. I just actually started off documenting everything I, I knew okay. and then putting each lake um, in alphabetical order and just writing notes. And then I thought I had enough to, um, write something that might be useful to other people. Mm-hmm. And at the time, there we have a, had an Inland Fisheries Commission. So it was the statutory body responsible for looking after our, our inland fishery. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had a new commissioner, um, a, a young fellow who at the time, I think, was the youngest head of department ever in Tasmania. Okay. Um, a fellow by the name of Rob Sloan. And your listeners should Google up Rob Sloan. The man is extraordinary. And he had just written a book, this is 1983, he had just written a book called The Truth About Trout. Yeah. And what was amazing about this book was that everything else I'd read, I'll just go back a step too. In Tasmania, yeah. our fishing conditions mirror more what you would have in the UK. Okay. Where in, whereas in New Zealand, the fishing conditions mirror more what you've got in North America. So in New Zealand, you've got big freestone rivers, which right. is what most people fish, and you've got all that American-style stuff going on. But in Tasmania, the, the streams that we have are genteel meadow streams, mm-hmm. and the lakes are wild, more like you'd get in Ireland or Scotland, right. which means that we were heavily influenced by UK literature, 
and New Zealand was heavily influenced by North American literature. Okay. Um, so for me, um, when I, I'm reading all this stuff, I'm reading, you know, GM skews and I'm reading all, and it's all about, um, you know, this is a nymph and this is a dry fly and this is yeah. why you would use a nymph instead of a dry fly. And even with the American stuff in New Zealand, it a similar, followed a similar pattern. It was like, you know, this is a dry fly, this is how you use it. This right. is a nymph, this is how you use it. This is a, a streamer, this is how you use it. Yeah. Well, Rob turned all that on its head with his book. It was like, this is what you're going to find trout doing in Tasmania. Okay, number one, they will tail in shallow water. You'll yeah. be walking on the lake shore and there will be fins sticking out of the water. Yeah. How do you approach that fish? Mm-hmm. You will find fish leaping out of the water. You'll find them leaping a metre out of the water. What are they doing? How do you target them? Mm-hmm. You'll find fish sipping like porpoising on a lake. What happens there? Mm-hmm. You will find fish smashing into schools of um, migratory white bait, um, uh, you know, bait fish. Right. Um, what do you do? And so and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And the thing that really got me was a was a chapter on uh, wind lanes. Now I don't know if you in Canada know much about wind lanes, but if you're on if you're on a lake mm-hmm. or the ocean, you'll see either strips of froth on a lake. Okay. Or if the lake is calm and there's no froth around, what you'll see is sort of ripply water, but then like a, oh. a stream of oily calm running down the lake. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah like it's like a current almost. Yeah, and they're currents. They're, yeah. they're currents. And what those currents do is they're spiraling currents yeah. and they funnel everything that's on the surface and a little bit underneath the surface into the middle of that. Okay. So Rob, Rob was the first, probably the first person in the world to have actually noted this and worked out that trout love this stuff. Oh, wow. And they get into these currents and they feed on midges, coronamids, yeah. um, predominantly, and also um, terrestrial beetles here in Tasmania. Mm. And I'd never noticed this. I read this book. I went out to the lake. I found my first wind lane and it was chock-a-block full of fish really? in the lake where you oh, never cool. see fish. Wow. Yes. Yeah. And so, and of course, I've applied that knowledge as have a heap of my contemporaries all over the world now. And it happens everywhere in the world. It's just a thing that is always there. That's cool. Um, so that book was a heavy influence for me. Mm-hmm. And right. so I approached Rob and I wanted to write my own book. And I said to him, um, you know, how did you go about publishing it? Yeah. And he self-published it and had done it really well. And he gave me the name of the the graphic designer and the, yeah. and the printer. But then it was up to me just to distribute it. And the first book, and I look back on it, I think it was a guidebook. It was scant. Um, there was so much stuff I didn't. I was so naive. I didn't know I was naive. <laughs> yeah. But because it was the only book available in Tasmania at the time, mm. um, People bought it. You know, what, what I had to do was like literally pack all these books into the back of a station wagon, um, drive it around to random shops, select it out of a phone book yeah. and walk into the shop and say, will you sell these books? <laughs> um, and Tasmania being a small community, people were actually really good. They didn't have to do it on consignment. They would buy them in advance. Wow. Never oh, expecting, wow. Yeah, never expecting to see, sell many of them, never expecting. Yeah. But... I got home um, after my first day of delivery and there were second orders coming through. That's awesome. Oh, that's amazing. Books sold like hotcakes. Like I say, it's nothing grand. Um, 
you can probably find a copy on the internet or something. Yeah. But I kept updating that book. It kept selling out, selling out, selling out. Yeah. So we've got like say half a million people in Tasmania and you know, that first print run, 10,000 books just gone. It's awesome. Yeah, you couldn't do that now. No problem to have. On the internet, oh, that's it, um, yeah. everything's on the internet. Yeah. It was just like completely accidental. Well, Had there been one other person who yeah. was more skilled than me, I wouldn't have got a shoe in, I feel. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> well, it's interesting you say that. Like, obviously, there was a community there, right, uh, that wanted to learn about fly fishing in that region. I mean, there's two things. I think one is... Um, talking about, you know, when you were looking at books from before and they were like, this is what a dry fly is. This is what a nymph is. It took people writing about like, no, this is how you fish in this specific place to really kind of crack open that, that literary kind of like, oh, that's interesting. You know, when we're talking about just Tasmania, I think that's awesome. Um, because we've all read those books, right? This is a nymph. This is a streamer. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like we get it. doesn't necessarily apply to your own streams or rivers or lakes. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, you had this region in Tasmania that you were fishing and you learned all about it and, you, you know, you, you really started to understand it. What compelled you to go, oh, I'm going to tell everybody about it? You know, what was it? What was the reason why you were like, I want to write a book documenting this, you know? And I, I know maybe it was to inspire just like yourself, you know, 11-year-olds to get out fishing. But what was it? Like, why, why did you do it? Okay, I've got, I've got two answers to that. Okay. Uh, I'll give you the... Um, I'll give you what is probably closer to the truth, which isn't um, which isn't as dramatic. Basically, um, you've got a um, naturally scientific mind, so it's yeah. collating and collecting and um, and then trying to work out patterns. Mm-hmm. And you've done that work, and basically you just want to show it to people, right? Yeah, and that's it, really. Yeah, I get. That. But then, um, what I like, what I thought at the time, mm-hmm. and what actually happened later on was that it got into being a much greater good. So a lot of the work that I do now is very conservation-based, and particularly in the era of climate change. But even when I was a young fellow, Tasmania, like a lot of rural outposts, um, has two things going on. It's got a big, what we would call, redneck community. Mm -hmm. I say that with affection because I grew up in a logging town. Um, The rednecks are my friends. I'm just quite like in the simple words, <laughs> give you that group of people. And then we've got this big arts community. Mm-hmm. Um, and politicians work to create divisions in society that don't normally exist, that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for politicians. Yeah. And they wedge that all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, it's how they get power. And so in Tasmania, they've done it and they've pitted um, environmentalists against workers the whole time. So as I grew up right. in um, a, a little town on the east coast, we suddenly had a wood chip industry, a logging industry that was incredibly destructive. Yeah. All my favourite um, places that I visited were in danger of being destroyed, every oh, okay. last one of them. So what you know is advocacy equals protection. And yeah. if you don't have advocacy, you have no protection. So my first introduction into writing, it was much more vain than that. But by the time I'd upgraded to the third um, edition of the book, I'm really, really interested in preserving this massive area called the Western Lakes, which had no protections at the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, we worked hard to get it created in a national park, and we worked even harder to get it um, as, a, as a World Heritage Area. Yeah. And 
then you're struck with a, a problem, which one of the big attractions in the Western Lakes is, to, is that sense of independent discovery. The, the idea that you're just walking in a place that is pure wilderness, it's untracked, and to discover a lake that suddenly has 10 pound brown trout cruising around in it. it it's different to if you, um, someone tells you that it's there and everybody's going there. Yeah. Right. So it's like, how can you promote it, but at the same time retain that you know, sense of awe when people go there? Mm-hmm. And in the end, what I opted to do was to come up with a heap of recipes so that if you want to catch tailing fish, these are the things to look for in the lakes. And I'll tell yeah. you one or two so you can get a taste for it. Yeah. But the others, you're going to have to That's use cool. your initiative to find them. That's great. It's pretty simple. If you, you don't have to use much initiative, you're going to find it. If you want to find trophy trout, big trout, this is the recipe. This is why these right. lakes have yeah. trophy trout in them. And you can find them. Basically, they're isolated headwater lakes with hardly any recruitment. Small number of fish, lots of food equals big fish. Yeah. Um, again, with the mayfly lakes and everything else, you need Isoetes weed for good mayflies in the in the Western Lakes, and you can yeah. see it. Just look into the water and see that there it's not. Um, and so you end up with a bunch of recipes, twenty or thirty of them, for people to be able to find the way around. And I always nominate a couple of lakes where you can get a feel for that style of fishing, and then it's up to you. Yeah, that see, seems to have worked. That's a great answer. An, a... an enormous passion in the community, which yeah. means that at the moment we have in the era of Donald Trump, Donald Trump's influence is global and it's yeah. very, very destructive. And it's given um, the more extreme end of the right wing um, license to yeah. do all sorts of um, undermining of our democracy. And here in Tasmania, it's been how can we undermine our national park system? We really do, don't, we, we loathe the idea of land being public it should be for our mates to make money out of and so the state government at the moment is looking it has actually begun privatizing the western lakes really um yep just giving like the the first one is a a 10 hectare island given to one of its mates not only did the public not know about this the public was legally not allowed to know about this it's about as trumpian as you can get yeah that's crazy yeah, it is crazy. And so we, we uh, and unfortunately, the developer um, used to be a friend of mine as well. Oh, really? But mm. yeah, so it's, 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 it's quite hard stuff to deal with. Yeah. But having done that, building up this advocacy for the region, the government really has bitten off more than it can chew. You know, we've, yeah. we've been fighting this now for five years. We've uh, been able to get enough donations to take it through to the Supreme Court. Wow. Um, uh, ultimately, we will win this battle. Um, yeah. We could not have done that without advocacy. We could not have done it if um, myself and a whole bunch of other people hadn't been writing and promoting and looking at sensitive ways of promoting that don't actually destroy the very thing that you love. Yeah. That is an amazing answer. Yeah. And you know what? Like, yeah. honestly, like a lot of people listening need to hear that because we get so many people that complain about, oh, fly fishing pictures and podcasts. They're like, you guys have a podcast. You're the worst. You know, you give away all the fishing spots. It's like, no, we yeah. don't. No, we don't. We just give you yeah. the recipe, like you're saying, you know, of yeah. how to go yeah. and catch stuff. But like the adventure is going to the lakes and finding, discovering it for yourself, right? 
Yep, definitely, definitely. The other thing, the other thing too, is that you need to make um, fly fishing, particularly in Tasmania, if you don't have a mentor and you don't have a guide, yeah. um, is the most difficult fishing in the world, I believe. I, I have, I travel a lot and I fish a lot all over the world, mm -hmm. um, and I have not found a place that is technically more challenging than Tasmania. That said, that doesn't mean you're not going to catch fish because you are. Right. But if you're a ranked beginner starting off by yourself with a fly rod, you really aren't going to catch too many fish. You're going to have a lot of blank days. Yeah. Um, and that's off-putting. That means that if you, you go out again and again and again and you don't have success, you'd end up doing some other, other sport. Yeah. Right. So what we try to do or what I've tried to do in writing and as working as a guide is to get um, – enough success very early on in a person's um, fishing career yeah. that they want to pursue it further. Yeah. And that means that, you know, we have uh, big, mainly hydroelectric lakes here in Tasmania that um, have zillions of fish in them. And um, again, world-class fishing that you can take beginners to and make sure that they catch fish pretty quickly. And that when they've had their first few days of doing this, they can just take that away and use it themselves. And um, it's, it's quite interesting. Tasmania is small and pretty much everywhere I go now, people I don't know recognise me and they all want to thank myself and Rob Sloan and a bunch of other people for making their early fishing days successful. It's amazing. Yeah. And that's, um, it's flattering and it's it's a good thing. But it also makes me realise that if you want to protect an environment, um, a certain number of people have to get it out there and do the footwork. They have to get out there and do the promotional work. Yes. What I have noticed is over time that young people tend to be too busy following their passion to be politically motivated. Um, and then people get to be sort of middle-aged and suddenly they've got a little bit more time on their hand and they want to give something back and they understand the nature of politics more. They understand that every protection is only temporary. It's only there for as long as the community support that protection. Yeah. Um, so we have this core body of people that are mainly, you know, 35 to 50 and older that are the forefront of our conservation movement here. But then when there is an issue like the current one with the Western Lakes, we have lots of young people in their early 20s who are prepared to get out there and do the hard work, providing that a, um, a mechanism has been set up for them to make it fairly easy to lobby and protest. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's you're like 100 percent right. You know, you have to have those. And, and in Tasmania, the advocacy is it's it's there's a pretty good base of people that are fighting for the greater good i take it yeah definitely but also there's a you know yeah the, the usual like people a smaller group of people with a lot of money and a lot of determination and um right. you know you don't you don't win every battle yeah it's amazing how the story is the same everywhere you know everywhere it's crazy <laughs> everywhere heard the story so many times you know talking to people on the podcast and I don't know. It's, you know, it's good that they're, but you know, like to your point, when you write and you get this out there, people get excited, inspired and they fight for it. And that's amazing. Right. Yeah. Do you remember your first fish on the fly rod? We kind of just skipped. Oh over that. yes, <laughs> I do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. I'm walking in the Western lakes and I'm seeing lots and lots and lots of fish that I simply will not eat a lure. So basically here, if you, um, if the weather's rough, 
and particularly early on in the season and the water's high, fish are really quite aggressive um, and they will eat lures. And then as um, spring turns into summer, the water's shallower, um, it's clear, there's blue sky and brown trout really don't want to eat lures. They just do. But you'll see them and they're everywhere and you can't catch them. So I knew I had the fly fish and I'd been carrying a fly rod. No one to teach me how to fly fish. Couldn't cast anything, didn't know how to cast, but been carrying it around with me for ages. And I'm in this little remote part of the Western Lakes, a lake called Lake Naomi. And there's a spinner hatch going on. There's fish on the edge of the Pinrush marshes leaping out of the water. And when they hit the water, you can then spot them as they're tracking their next mayfly. And I can't catch them. And I thought, well, I'm going to take my spinning rod. I'm going to leave it at camp and I'm only going to carry my fly rod. So I walked around the lake for the whole day doing really shitty casts and not, <laughs> not looking like catching anything. Yeah. And then miraculously, late in the day, a fly fell close enough to a fish for the fish to come up and eat my fly. And nice. it, was, it came from two metres away. You could see the whole thing, swimming up, swimming up, swimming up, swimming up, wide open mouth, clomping over the fly. And I couldn't believe it when I set the hook and it was on. Yeah. Um, I love that. And I never picked up a spinning rod again after that. That sounds about right. Yeah. yeah. Why, do you, why do you think trout, you know, what was it about the trout that made, made like, why did they thrive in that area? Like, are there other, uh, are there other indigenous species of fish there or did they just? No, so well, Tasmania doesn't really have, so what we have are, uh, eels okay. we okay. have a little little um native bait fish called galaxids um okay. the biggest of those great about the size of a cuban cigar um <laughs> we have a couple of other little fish we've got fresh uh, little fresh water flathead and we've got um mm. we've got a thing in some northern rivers a native fish called blackfish okay mm. but there is absolutely nothing that in any way um would be a sport fish there's nothing that you mm. can hunt Right. You can right. catch these fish on a worm and a hook, but you can't really hunt any of these fish. Right. Um, I think for me personally, what I found attractive about trout is all that stuff that you've read as a child. They're mm-hmm. romantic animals, and mm-hmm. there's been so much fine literature written about them, not just about catching fish, but so much poetic stuff. Mm-hmm. And we did have a, um, a Tasmanian author who... Um, grew up in the UK, came here as a young man and wrote some of the finest fishing books ever. Um, his name was David Scholes. Um, and a book that you might want to look up is called Fly Fisher in Tasmania. Okay. Um, this is beautiful writing. So in addition to being instructional, there are passages there that even now just take my breath away for the wow. beauty of the writing. Yeah. Um, so we're fortunate to have that. That sort of added to that mystique about yeah. fly fishing. But then as you get to know the fish more, you realise that I don't know of any other fish that behaves in such diverse ways. I don't know any other fish that is so suited to the hunting method that we use, that sight fishing. Yeah. I mean, I personally never cast unless I see a fish. Um, we don't have to in Tasmania. The yeah. fish are there. You just know, need to know where to see them. Clear water. Yeah. Clear and even water. if we have some waters that aren't, um, aren't so clear, but things happen in those waters. There, you know, you will look for fish smashing bait fish or rising or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, Any structure in those in those areas? Yeah. 
But, you know, a lot of our, so uh, the structure here will be um, mainly at the edges of marshes and, and perhaps in um, spring, some of our lakes will come and rivers will come up and they will flood the forest and the structure then are the actual right. trees. Mm -hmm. But what's amazing here in Tasmania, you can have lakes with absolutely no apparent structure, just um, a, a lake that's, say, 10 hectares big with a smooth silt bottom, nothing, not a skerrick of weed oh. or anything on it, full really? of fish. I love it. Maybe. Is, is, is that because there's no, like, direct predator for the, for the trout? Or, like, I mean, I feel like... Oh, no, there's, hiding, well, right? there's certainly nothing here that's evolved to eat a trout. But we do have uh, we do have a sea eagle, which is very much like a bald eagle to look at, um, and yeah, maybe that is part of it. Maybe maybe it is that there are no natural predators. But in truth, similar water all over the world, everywhere I've been, the fish behave the same. Right, right. So I've not really found a place where they behave too differently. Right, right. Um, in Tasmania, like the the site fishing techniques that were developed here, they apply all over the world. But similarly, the techniques that developed in America and the UK and Europe, um, proponents come to Tasmania and apply those techniques. The UK one's interesting because they've developed a whole heap of techniques that are designed to catch stock fish in reservoirs. Um, right. And they look absurd, you know, um, they're block style techniques with three flies on the end of a yeah. long floppy and rod. Blobs um, and boobies sort of and whatnot. Yeah, and check nymphing too in our creeks. They all work. Like, and they work for wild fish every bit as well as they work for stockfish. Yeah. Right. Um, so we can learn something. But the problem for us in Tasmania is we have quite a good contingent of world-class fly fishers that go into the World Fly Fishing Championships. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They usually perform really well. Um, but every one of them, and generally... If you want to catch lots of fish and win a world, win a world fly fishing championship, you are doing things like block style fishing or chicken nymphing. Totally. Right. But right. every one of these guys, when they're doing fishing by themselves, they don't do that stuff. They sight fish like the rest of it. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. right, of course. Because yeah. why wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Why? Okay, here's a question for you. And this might sound kind of rudimentary, but I've seen a lot of pictures of fish in Tasmania and New Zealand, and they're massive. Why, why are they so big down there? What's going on? Like, what are they Oh, okay. So let's, let's do that. Well, first, the simple answer is um, one I don't know. But um, <laughs> I'll give you the Tasmanian rundown first. Tasmanian yeah. fish are generally, on average, smaller than New Zealand fish, and, and substantially so. So in our lakes, um, some lakes you're looking at fish that are typically uh, one and a half pounds to two and a half pounds. Okay. Um, and in other lakes, in our best lakes, you're looking for fish that sort of average three pounds or a little bit better. In New Zealand, uh, similar water, you'd be looking at fish that are more like four or five pounds hmm. average. But also in Tasmania, we have these trophy lakes that I was telling you about the 10 pound fish, but yeah. they're a tiny percent of the actual available water in Tasmania, minuscule. Right. And there, the dynamic is easy to pick. It is just availability of food. Mm. So small population, lots of food equals a small number of big fish. Right. Um, right. Not much food, lots of recruitment equals a huge head of smaller fish. Yeah. Mm. And it's, you know, it's, that's being a little bit simplistic, but that's pretty much how Typically, it works. Typically, yeah. yeah. In New Zealand, um, they obviously have a whole heap more production but it is hard to see. Like 
the big freestone rivers, mm-hmm. they are crystal clear water running over polished cobbles. There's no weed. There's there's right. nothing there. You can turn over a rock and sure there's nymphs there, but you can do that in Tasmania too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But clearly it is a function of food. And yeah. um and and the other thing I wouldn't say in New Zealand, I used to think that maybe the population of fish had to be smaller, but it's not like you can walk up a freestone river in New Zealand and see literally hundreds of fish. Jeez. So but there is something going on there. And if I had on. another lifetime, yeah. I'd try and work it out. <laughs> yeah. Here's the thing I want to talk about with New Zealand. What yeah. makes the fish really big in New Zealand? Yeah. Um, and for people who in Canada who aren't really familiar with mm-hmm. where we live, Southeast Australia, Victoria, the states of Victoria and New South Wales and our island state of Tasmania, it's all Gondwanan. And so that means... Um, the rainforest is all the same. We have the same uh, genera in our rainforest. Um, And, you know, it was all joined together with Antarctica and so too New Zealand. So when, and for me, that is my home. My home is New Zealand, New South Wales, Victoria, Tasmania. Queensland, tropical Australia, the desert, Western Australia, they're foreign countries to me. Right. (laughs) Far away. I don't yeah. It's not that I do not consider those places home at all. But New Zealand is my home. It's only a three-hour flight across the Tasman Sea. Yeah. Um, the culturally, it's very much like Tasmania, and environmentally, other than the big, big rivers that we don't have in Tasmania, mm-hmm. it's very, very much the same. But the predominant tree in Tasmanian rainforests and New Zealand rainforests is a Nothophagus. Um, and the Nothophagus are Gondwanan. They're found only in the Southern Hemisphere. In Tasmania, we've got two species of them. In New Zealand, they've got five. Argentina, Chile, I think they've got 11. Because that, that's the other thing you get yeah. Argentina, Chile. It's just like being right in there. Tasmania. Totally. Yeah. 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 Um, and in Argentina and Chile and in Tasmania and Southeastern um, Australia, the Nothophagus trees flower and they produce seeds, but not so much. Right. In New Zealand, their Nothophagus trees undergo mass flowering every four or five years. And what this does, it precipitates mouse plagues. Okay. They have to be seen to be believed. I did send you guys some photos of yep. the mice. I spotted right. Yes. <laughs> that was last January, which happened to be the, the, the uh, mass flowering is called a mast year. Okay. It happened to be the biggest mast year in living memory and perhaps the biggest ever. It was phenomenal. And you walk in, out, explain the rainforest, yep. closed canopy rainforest with moss understory. Okay. So you right. can just walk anywhere in a rainforest. That's beautiful. Um, and in New Zealand, when you're walking through and it's mast year, you have mice everywhere sitting on tree trunks running along the tracks. Oh, my God. It's used one of the backcountry huts. They're just running around on tables and <laughs> out the doors. And they don't even want to pinch your food because what they want are the seeds of the right. Vegas trees. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Solely so focused on the seeds. A, a bunch of mice in the forest yeah. that now local law has it that the trees ferment on the seeds and the mice eat the, tr- the seeds and get drunk. <laughs> so there's a bunch of drunk like, mice running around. I don't around. know whether it's true or not, <laughs> but what's true. undoubted is that the mice fall into the water regularly mm-hmm. and the trout and the eels love it. Mm-hmm. 
they just gobble them. So in a, a, a backcountry river, oh. uh, backcountry river where the fish might be typically six or seven pounds, yeah. three months into a mast year, they're 10, 11, 12 pounds. Jesus. <laughs> and not only I'm that, okay with that. Most of the fishing is done at night yeah. um, when the mice are most active. And in the daytime, when you're walking up the rivers, you'll see these giant fish just hanging in the current. And they've eaten so much in the night that sometimes they're just not interested. They're just sleeping off. Yeah. They're just not interested. Yeah. This last mast year, there were so many mice around that um, there were still mice running and falling into the water all day long. There were owls out hunting in the daytime. Wow. Because there's just so much food available. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely brilliant for catching mouse feeders in the middle of the day. Yeah. Um, oh, that must have been fantastic. Yeah. So that's an event that actually you can actually see in those years why New Zealand fish would be bigger than a Tasmanian fish. Got it. Makes sense. That's an yeah. amazing. It's almost like a mouse hatch or something, you know? It's like it is a mouse hatch. Yeah. That's yeah. wild. And, and here's an interesting thing. I, I I've travelled a lot. And I have known of like random of mouse plague events. They they will happen anywhere randomly. But I've yeah. never I've always thought that New Zealand was the only place in the world that had a regular um, mouse event. And like I say, it's typically four to five years. Yeah. Um, and news gets out pretty quickly nowadays in social media, so you can just fly over there and get in amongst it. Last year. Um, my wife and I went to South America. Yeah. So in February, we were in um, the Lakes District in Argentina. Okay. Now, the one difference between Argentinian rainforest mm-hmm. and the forest we have here in Australia and New Zealand is they have a plant we don't have, which is bamboo. Right. And I don't know if you okay. guys have been to Argentina, but... Not yet. Um, Not it's yet. called Kanye. Yeah, Kanye Clearway, you cannot walk through it. It is just wow. an unbelievable barrier. Um, and so that lovely freedom we have in Tasmania of New Zealand, just being able to wander anywhere through our rainforest yeah. doesn't exist there. Okay. Now, Kanye Clearway, apparently it flowers, but it flowers once every 70 years. 70 years, wow. Every 70 years. And when it does flower, um, it's generally quite localised. So, you know, you'll get a little patch of rats and mice, but it might only be in an area of 30,000 hectares or something like that. Right. You know, or 16,000 hectares or 10,000 hectares. Um, but over the last three years in Argentina, for some unknown reason, probably been climate change, mm-hmm. all their carnia, pretty much every last bit of it has swelled. Oh, man. And, it precipitated a mouse plague on par with the stuff that I've seen in New Zealand. Um, and there's some great stories. Now, again, this might be a myth, but this was told to us by so many local anglers yeah. that um, I just love it anyway. I don't care if it's a lie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kanye Clearway seeds, a little black seed, and they fall to the forest floor. And I reckon it can be like, you know, hundreds of tons per hectare of seed when it happens. Right. Um, and they swell up enormously when they're wet. Okay. So the mice go down, they get a belly full of seeds, and then they're really thirsty. So they go and have a drink and they explode. Oh my God, because they <laughs> ate so much. Yeah. Because they ate so much. Oh my God. Uh, That's hilarious. That's amazing. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh, mice exploding. <laughs> so you're just fishing and you're just hearing like, 
pop, pop. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We were there at the very tail end of the um, of the um, mm-hmm. of the mouse hatch in Argentina, um, and so the fish, the the mice weren't there in any profusion, and the um, the fish obviously had nothing to feed on, and yeah. so. What we were seeing were fish that were in rather poor condition because they had had this big availability of food that got really big and now that food resource has gone and there's nothing to sustain them. Right. Um, but what was good about being there at this um, time was that a lot of the backcountry cabins and stuff mm-hmm. had been closed because there with their mouse plagues, the, the mice and rats carry hantavirus or antivirus as they call it okay. in Argentina, um, which can be deadly. So um, a lot of little refugios and that had closed down because even touching any surfaces that are contaminated is potential risk. Um, The other thing that happened because of this was one when the carnia um, seeds, it dies, Mm -hmm. um, and then um, it has to grow, the new forest, carnia forest has to grow up from um, seed. For the the rest of the life cycle, it's growing from rhizomes. but what that means is you've got this enormous amount of dry carnia in the rainforest. Yeah. And so the locals set fire to the carnia to kill the rats and mice. Oh, wow. But this is Gondwan and rainforest. It, if you get a fire in it, it isn't coming back anytime soon. No, no, right. Um, so there's quite a, li- quite a lot of um, um, extensive fire damage in a lot of my favourite forests yeah. have been, have been severely affected by, oh, um, by fire. fire. Yeah, yeah. Jeez. But then it did give you unprecedented ability just to walk around, right? Yeah, that's right. Freedom by yeah, and yeah, regrowth after that, I suppose. So that was last February. You said you did that trip. That was last February. Yeah, right on. So like right at the beginning of this whole COVID thing. Yeah, well, that was the thing they were really worried about hantavirus. There, it sort of paled into insignificance with um, <laughs> with COVID. With COVID, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So were you you were over there for um, how long? Were you over there for? Uh, we, we were over there for um, a couple of months, a few months in the end. Um, nice. But there was no COVID in South America when we finished Argentina and then we flew to um, Cusco in Peru. Nice. Go and have a look at Machu Picchu. Now, what you guys might not know is that Machu Picchu is in the Sacred Valley in Peru mm-hmm. and the, the river that runs through the Sacred Valley, the Urubamba, uh, or I think the locals call it the uh, Vulcanota, um, is a rainbow stream, a rainbow trout stream. No way. Yeah. So, so you can catch did you fish three it? pound rain. Huh? Did you fish it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you were fishing like right by. When we were fishing in Machu Picchu. Machu Picchu. That's amazing. Fishing in, yeah, you can actually catch three pound rainbow trout in a, uh, in oh. winter. If you go there in winter yeah. when it's not flooded, um, it's a crystal clear freestone river full of three pound rainbow trout that you're hmm. welcome to fish. That's amazing. Oh my That's God. great. It is amazing. That's so cool. So, but our plane landed at Cusco, and I walked out of the um, airport, and a local um, Quechua woman there said to me, um, she recognised. Um, I speak reasonable Spanish, but I have a heavy Australian accent. Right. Um, <laughs> and uh, she said, "Oh, golly, you must be from Australia. You need to get hold of your um, embassy. We, the country's going into lockdown in three hours' time. In three hours. And, yeah, it was nine o'clock at night and midnight." the lockdown and they only announced it now beforehand oh my god so we got that it was the first country in the world to go into lockdown wow they, they, did, they did it really well we're looking at this must have been mid-march i guess yeah yep. like that um 
Now, I had, I wanted to actually, in addition to the rivers, there are in Peru some really good rainbow lakes in the high hills above 4,000 metres. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with fishing those is that, uh, I don't know how to say it in English, but probably the, for want of a better word in English, it's tribal land. Okay. So you really do, do need to know people to get up there to fish these places. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had found a local catchment guy that could take us up there. And luckily I had, I'd been conversing with him on the internet. And when we landed, he said, um, it gave us a phone call and said, we're going to lock down three hours time. You don't want to be in Cusco. You're going to be stuck in your motel room for at least two weeks, more likely longer than that. I'm going to pick you up right now. We won't pick you up in the morning and I'll take you down to the Sacred Valley. You'll have a lot more freedom down there. Wow. That so is done. a wild way to start your visit there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we still were in this tiny little town, first town up from Machu Picchu called Oliante Tambo, which is a Inca town. People still living in the... These are thoroughly modern people, by the way, like yeah. thoroughly modern people, but mm -hmm. they they still live in the um, in the buildings that were built by the Inca right. five, six years ago, and they still wow. use a lifestyle, a Quechua lifestyle that dates back 2,000 years. So wow. it's an extraordinary place to be stuck. That's yeah, it's, but yeah, like during a lockdown too. It's like yeah. traveling yeah. through time, you know. It's, that's and we were allowed a few more freedoms than they had elsewhere in Peru. You, every town was locked down. You certainly could not go from one town to another. Mm -hmm. um, but the military police did allow us to walk up on hills on trails that had okay. no people on them. So we we were far better off than we would have been elsewhere. The big problem for us was simply getting back to Australia because Australia right. closed its borders and. Right. Right. Yeah. It's that is such an amazing place to be stuck at such a strange time, you know. The whole world stops and is standing still and you're kind of like almost alone in this extremely like remote place. Like that's got to be such a weird feeling. It was a weird feeling and, and actually being in Peru was not a problem for us, but right. like I said the stress all came from trying to get back home to Australia. Home, yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, geez, fishing near Machu Picchu. I mean, that is something I could get into, especially right yeah, now. Absolutely. Man, <laughs> that's amazing. Um, Mitchie's Fishies 5? Sure. Okay, Wait, so, uh, yes. I, well, I mean, go ahead. I mean, I'm not the guest. I'm oh, just going to grab yeah. another 40 Creek. Of... of course, please. Grab some. Yeah. Please, please, um, please, okay. please, please. We, uh, so, Greg, we do uh, something at, at the end of every show where we ask, uh, we ask the same five questions to every guest, um, and they're just more fishing questions, just kind of broad fishing questions, but... Um, just five more of them and we ask everybody. So I'm going to, I'm going to ask you them now and there's no, you can cool. just take as long as you want to answer them. We could spend the next hour if you want. Uh, there's, it doesn't, <laughs> doesn't have to be a quick, quick sentence. It's not a buzzer running. beater or anything. No, yeah. no. Um, okay. So the first one is what is your favorite fish and why? Okay. The favorite fish is the brown trout. Okay. And yeah. And the brown trout, why? Because it is, it behaves in, a, in an incredible diversity of ways and every one of those ways it behaves offers opportunities for sight fishing, for trout hunting. Mm. Um, and the other thing about it is that it's a hard fish to catch. Right. Um, so it's easy enough that you can get ranked beginners to catch fish on their first day out with a fly. Mm -hmm. But it's hard enough that after fishing for 50 years, um, you still don't know enough about it and they are still days when you simply cannot catch these things. Now, I'll give you a comparison with um, rainbow trout. So statistically around the world, 
if you have um, a lake or a river with equal numbers of brown and rainbow trout in it, mm -hmm. generally, um, there, there are differences from location to location, but generally what you're going to do is find that anglers will catch four times as many rainbow trout as browns, right. even though the numbers are the same, because mm -hmm. they're easier to catch. Yeah. In New Zealand, the North Island of New Zealand is um, predominantly rainbow trout. It's got some wonderful brown trout fishing as well, but rainbow trout are what people go to the North Island for. And in right. their backcountry rivers in the rainforest, above waterfalls, there are a number of um, uh, rivers where you're looking to sight fish to rainbow trout that are in that 8 to 10 on a mouse year, even 12, 13, 14 pound bracket. It's pretty awesome. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. And you can um, basically catch everyone you see. If you, <laughs> if you can cast well, you'll catch everyone you see. Oh, my God. In a mouse year or when the cicadas are on, yeah. but they're yeah. pretty easy to catch. So I don't fish. I only fish the North Island probably once a year. Yeah. I don't fish it enough to get sick of doing that. It's very special fishing, but my friends who live in New Zealand don't do that anymore. It is just too easy. There's no challenge. Oh they liken it to trying to play competitive tennis with a seven-year-old. Right, that's right. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's no joy in it. Yeah, yeah. You, they'll yeah. go and have fun there. They'll take mates there and they'll have a fun day just as the same yeah. way you can hit a tennis ball around with a seven-year-old and have a lot of fun. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it's not what right. they're going to do it's not themselves. Challenge. Yeah. yeah. Where the brown trout... Um, it just requires that little bit more finesse and to do well at it, mm -hmm. then you're at the peak of your game when you're doing well at it. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's 100% true. I mean, brown trout fishing is quite difficult everywhere. I mean, yeah, everywhere, you know, even <laughs> down here, it's like very tricky. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to get back out and fish for browns. Oh my God. Um, okay, number two is if you could fish anywhere in the world right now, assuming COVID's not a thing and it's the best season to go fishing in that place. Where would you go and why would you go to that place? Oh, okay. So we can't the best. They're hard, aren't they? Um, yep. Best movie, best book, best. The best. Um, off the top of my head, I'm going to tell you my five um, favourite fisheries okay. globally. And um, I actually recommend these as the best fisheries in the world. Yeah. But I'll give you some parameters. For me, the best fisheries have to have wild fish. Mm -hmm. They have to have... Uh, a, uh, a, a natural environment. They have to offer opportunities for sight fishing and they need to offer an opportunity that is available nowhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. So that's how I would define best yeah. fisheries in the world. Okay. And, uh, the and doing that, are good. I like that. My favourites are, yeah. um, in no particular order, um, South Island backcountry fishing for brown trout, yeah. North Island backcountry fishing for rainbow trout, Mongolia's Taman and Lenox fishery. <laughs> Yellowstone, Yellowstone's cutthroat fishery, just mm -hmm. because, again, landscapes and culture yeah. in mm -hmm. Yellowstone are just amazing. Um, and Tasmania's Western Lakes. Nice. And, and Tasmania's Western Lakes is absolutely unique in the world. And I don't, it sounds like I'm biased because I'm a Tasmanian. Trust me, I'm not. I'm not a patriotic bone in my body, but it is just extraordinary to have you know perhaps four thousand lakes that yeah. anybody can walk to in a wilderness area where you don't even need hiking tracks. You're not going to see anywhere anyone else. Yeah. Um, and the walking is so easy. One of the great things about too, we don't have bears and stuff like that. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Okay. What are you going to yeah, see out nothing. there? Like wallabies and echidnas and platypuses and yeah. Um, you can 
set your camp up and just leave it and just like you're safe. Yeah. yeah. So any any one of those places, I would I would fish. It's a great parameters. I mean, yeah, I I, I agree yeah. with them. I think that's so true. I got I mean, I got to see this Western Lakes area. It sounds absolutely insane. <laughs> it is insane. It yeah. really is insane. Yeah. I love it. Okay. Keeping in with the bests and favorites. You're right. That's exactly what these five questions are. They're bests and favorites. Um, we've had people on the show be like, I don't know my favorite fishes. Like, ask me something better. I'm like, I don't know. Like, um, The third question in, in the Mitchie's Fishies Five is, what is your favorite or one of your favorite fishing memories? Just one of your favorite fishing memories. Okay. Well, I have... Um, a few of them, and let me think. I will give you. I'll give you two. Okay. So many. I know. Two I love talking about. Okay, we were um, fishing in Mongolia on the Nongolia Non River. That's so cool. Um, and we were fishing for taimen, and um, I was in control of the raft, and we're drifting around a a big bend on this big river, oh. and my wife's fishing. Um, now, my wife is a really, really good fisherman. I think a little bit kudos here. She is um, actually my rock. She is my editor. She um, she's an all-round sports girl at school. Yeah. So, you know, learned to double haul. Mm-hmm. It took her a minute. She actually <laughs> did a, a 25-meter cast to a fish by me explaining what a double haul was. <laughs> it took me six years. Six years. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she's a very, very good fisherman. And we were um, drifting down the, the river. We went down a big bend with an eddy in it, and she's stripping a mouse fly across the top of the, the water, yeah. and a giant taimen came up. It's the biggest taimen I've seen. It would be uh, 1.5 metres long. Yeah. It's got the head the size of a round mouth shovel. Yeah. Um, it's come up to eat her fly just as she's lifting the fly off the water. Mm. And the fly leaves the water and it's got its head out of the water, oh. chomping like an angry shark. <laughs> Where the hell is this fly gone? Yeah. It's shifted so much water as it's come up that the, this four man raft and air raft has moved bodily one meter to the side oh my God. to allow for the current. She's stunned with her yeah. um, fly hanging out behind her, not even thinking to recast. Yeah. And me and the mate didn't even have the wherewithal to, to shout, get your fly back on the water. It's frozen. And then it disappeared, never to be seen again. Oh, my God. That's insane. Beautiful memory. Oh, um, and another one, we were in Iceland fishing for um, sea run Arctic char. Oh, nice. And, um, again, Francis had to do a big cast into a cavity on the far bank. So we're talking like 22, 23-metre cast okay. into a cavity. Um, and... She performed this cast, but rather than the Arctic char eating it, a um, 20-pound sea trout, sea-run brown trout, came up. It grabbed the indicator, came a metre and a half out of the water, did some (laughs) sort of triple-turn half-pike, dropped back in. It didn't want to let go of the indicator, so she actually had it on for a while until eventually it did let go of the indicator. Wow. (laughs) But spectacular. That's amazing. that's the first time I've I often think those fish you don't catch yeah. provide better memories than the ones you do. So. Totally, yeah. yeah. Especially yeah. like heard... catching one on an indicator that like yeah. in that way. That's crazy. Yeah. And you staying know? and staying on the indicator for a while. That's yeah, a... just for a while. Yeah. Just, <laughs> well, it's something while. you can do. You can actually break the hook off a fly and yep. cast to a fish. Um, and it's amazing how long that 
not always, but often it's amazing how long a fish will hold that fly before it spits it out. Like they're actually fighting. They think they're actually fighting the bug. They're like, this is a strong yeah. bug. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a strong. Just while we were on that, in Tasmania, we don't actually have any dangerous animals, like I say, but we do have yeah. lots of snakes. So they have tiger snake. There's a thing that's usually about a meter long. Yeah. Usually black, can be tiger colored, usually black. Um, it, it's poisonous, but they're not aggressive. Um, so we, we just don't worry about them too much. Mm-hmm. They have um, most of their diet is tadpoles and frogs. So when you're fishing for tailing fish in the marshes on a warm October day, um, if I've got friends with me, a really cool thing to do is you break the hook off your fly and you cast your fly to a tiger snake and it'll eat that fly straight away. Yeah. And they really don't want to give it up. Like you can drag them a metre or a metre and a half before they decide to spit it out. Yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. That would be something we do with Yoma because Yoma's terrified of snakes and bears and any kind of... (laughs) Thing like that, right? Yeah, well, that would be perfect, right? <laughs> oh, his fire alarm is on. He just messaged yeah. the group chat, so it's going <laughs> off. All right, go back on mute then, Yoma. Um, I love that. I love that. Okay, so number four <laughs> is um, why do you fly fish? And we've touched on it a little bit, but what? just to reiterate, I guess, why Why is it that you keep going out there to fly fish? What do you get out of it? Okay, so for um, uh, if I had a million lifestyles, I could do a million uh, lifetimes, I could do a million different things. Mm. But like I said, for me, um, fishing is all about nature. I'm not naturally coordinated like my wife. And so I fish well these days, but I had do a lot of practice to be able to fish well. Mm. Um, I think I could just, I love observing nature. And when I observe nature, I have questions. And the only way you can answer those questions is to test your theories. Yeah. And fly fishing enables me to do that if i was a photographer i would which i would really enjoy doing just photographing wildlife the hunt would still be there in that um, situation but i just wouldn't have the opportunity to test the things that i'm doing yeah and and also it's been interesting i don't think i'd ever be a good enough photographer to do stuff that other people hadn't done right but with fishing, I, I've been really fortunate in that I've been able to do stuff that no one else has ever done before and then to be able to um, introduce other people to those concepts and ideas and places. Yeah, yeah, it's kind those of Those like- photos that you sent, are those from you? Like, is this from your camera? You're, you, you took those pictures? Yeah. Yeah, they're yeah. wonderful, by the way. Beautiful just photos, yeah. Oh, yeah, thanks. Really, yeah. yeah, but I'll tell you what, they're just nowhere. The magazine that I write for most, Fire Life, which is actually um, Rob Sloan, the the guy I was telling you about wrote the truth about trout. Yeah. Um, he's the founding editor of that magazine. Okay. The photographers in that um, just smash my ass, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and the only reason I take halfway decent photos is I'm interested in words. Um, and the only way I can sell my words is to try and compete with these red hot um, photographers from mainland Australia and New Zealand. They're extraordinary. Like, yeah, there's some amazing. Have a, look at, you can, a lot of the um, fly life, you can look at back issues online, yeah. you know, particularly in the last 20 or 30 issues when the technology's got right. good. Yeah. Just have a look at what they're doing. It's yeah. incredible. It really yeah. is incredible. And I think, you know, like social media and stuff's like almost um, made it pushed people even more to like get more creative and and it's true like some of the like fly fishing photography out there is just it's insane like it's like amazing it is there are two guys um that you should look at in particular i'm thinking of um fellow by the name of peter broomhall okay um and you can google up some of his shots he is absolutely great at getting those 
uh, photographs of a fish in midair with a mayfly in its mouth. Right, or, right. He's so good that when I need photos like that, I'll ring Peter up and say, uh, Peter, I need a photo of a uh, brown trout yeah. eating a damselfly midair. Like, um, and it'll say, okay, well, the weather's good. Let's go here. We'll get them today. And we'll go out. We'll spend the afternoon and I will have my choice of 30 shots. <laughs> That's wow. awesome. Wow. <laughs> you know, and yeah. you can see some of them, you know, on his website. Yeah. Um, another guy is a fellow called Stephen Uwe, double OI. Okay. Um, and he's, he's like Peter. He can just do all that stuff. Yeah. They're brilliant photographers. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's awesome. And another fellow, Brad Harris, who doesn't do so much that fish grabbing little animals, but his um, his scenery shots and his human shots, you know, like two anglers sitting on a bank having a chat. Yeah. We can all photograph that, but well, I certainly can't capture all the mood and stuff that I want to get in a situation like that. Brad can. That's the key, right? Right. Yeah. Capturing like the the mood, like you say, the mood, the feeling, like yeah, and trans and actually communicating that with a photo. That's right. That is the challenge. Yeah. Um, okay, number five, Mitchie's Fishies five, is what fly pattern um represents you best and why? If you were a fly, what would you be? Oh golly. That's <laughs> that's so, so, um, one of the question we like the most, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and we've well, had enough. We've had a lot of woolly buggers. Yeah, that's okay. Well, <laughs> I would probably be a mouse fly, I reckon, because nice. yeah, because the mouse fly, well, you know, they're sort of woolly and wild and get drunk a lot. Yeah, and fall in water and get whacked. That's pretty much me, right? <laughs> um, but I do want to point out while we're on that little topic here in Tasmania and New Zealand, particularly, um, we don't generally have that obsession with matching the hats um okay yeah i fished all over the world and i am prepared to go i'm prepared to be quite adamant about this that matching the hats doesn't matter a rat. right presentation is important and often getting a trigger is important so for example here in tasmania when fish are being very selective on blue damselflies um they need blue they're not going to eat anything that doesn't have blue on it right. but does it have to look like a damselfly? Nah. It just has to have blue, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so often the good fly design here in Tasmania and New Zealand involves finding the trigger for those difficult feeders. Yeah. Um, and then tying what Rob Sloan so memorably called a functional fly, one that will do the job and remain durable for your entire fishing session. And so we tend to go for functional flies over mm-hmm. hatch flies. I love it. Yeah, that's great. I mean, yeah, it's like we're going back to the mice again. Yeah. You go to New Zealand, and because mice um, feeding trout is such a big thing, you can buy these beautiful mouse flies that look exactly like the real thing. Um, I ran out of them once at night time when I was fishing and didn't have anything else big enough to make a splash in the wake, which is what the fish are actually targeting. Yeah. So we went back to camp and we got a wine cork. And we super glued it to a No hook. way. That's awesome. And it was perfect. <laughs> and I just thought it was flash and wave, although my mates did say I reckon it was the alcohol. They do seem to get. That's right. Exactly. 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 I love that. You're going hilarious. after the Glenn Fiddick, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. 
Um, yeah. That's it for Mitch's Fishies 5. Mouse pattern. I love that. I think that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, we've never. I don't think we've ever Ooh. heard that before. Only um, Gab. Yeah, Gab. Yeah. Maybe once. Yeah. I love that, yeah. though. Um, Greg, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Honestly, it's Oh, great. you're welcome. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks, yeah, Greg. That was great. great. It's been super cool. cool. This has been super yeah. cool. Yeah, absolutely. Really, really cool chatting. And, uh, um, geez, if we're ever over in Australia, we got to hit you up. Or if you come if to you Canada. Over, you've got, yeah, you've got my email. Um, yeah. Look me up. Vision. Yeah, man. Ops, absolutely. Yeah, Amazing. Okay. Even in New Zealand, if we, if we go to New Zealand first, we'll oh, let yeah, you know. We'll, so, we'll yeah, you do. I've been yeah. to New Zealand all the time. So yeah. it's awesome. high likelihood that I would be there. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, or I can always just regular regular trip over there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Pre-COVID, it was pretty cheap to go from Tasmania to New Zealand. I don't oh, know what's going to happen. Ta- Australia won't have its borders open in 2021. Yeah. Um, okay. So we, unlike you guys, we have basically have no COVID in Australia. Yeah, we that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, reading about. <laughs> yeah, we, we really have had them, but we've put the lid on it pretty quickly. Yeah. And in mainland Australia, we get an outbreak every month or so, and, and it would be disastrous if seven people get COVID. Wow, jeez. But everything is shut down straight away. Like, it's not. That's a yeah. massive lockdown until the threat's yeah. over. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. It's like it does mean. It's not like that here. For us <laughs> yeah. for at least 12 months, probably 18 months. Yeah. Right. Well, next year we'll we'll get together and we'll uh, we'll go toss some mice. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Sounds good. I love it. Wicked. Thanks so much again, Greg, for okay, chatting. You're and, welcome. Uh, and that's that's thanks that. See you guys. Have Take a care. Have a good day. Thanks. Yeah. Thank, nice thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. <laughs> Super nice guy. Super nice. I guy. love I love talking to authors. I know he's so that's smart and just well spoken and storytell exactly articulates thoughts so well. You know. Yeah, you like hang on every word. Yeah, a hundred percent. No, it was. Uh, Are we recording right now? Of course, we're recording right now, man. We're Holy always recording. Holy shit! I didn't know if you started or not. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so great. Always I mean, recording. Like, always. I mean, we, always recording. I mean, always. I have his book, um, "The Imperiled Cutthroat," mm-hmm. which we didn't even get to. But I mean, like, what are you supposed to do with a guy that has a career that yeah. long? It's like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's crazy. But I mean, like, I guess you can boil it down to it's pretty interesting that, like, you know, his fishing turned into you know a passion for writing yeah which then turned into a passion for conservation and then that's what you know kind of guide, guiding compass i mean like that's yeah. what imperiled cutthroat's all about right it's all about absolutely um these wild you know he's mentioned wild species is something that's you know i think that we got to have him on again to talk about the cutthroat and just to talk about you yeah. just talk about imperiled cutthroat because there's so much we could talk about just in in you know uh, North America that he's fished and understands and we didn't even touch like we talked about you know his where he's from and stuff and a little bit on um well uh, I think that makes sense because I mean like I've never South talked America. about Tasmania ever I know ever I know I didn't even I actually like never brought it up I never you know what you know who you know the first time I sort of heard about it was from one of our listeners down in Tasmania um hold on let me pull that up because I was like I was like that was when I was it like, is, it, I was like, whoa, we have a listener in Tasmania? This was like a couple years ago. Although, did you change your background? Did you like rearrange your house? looks so neat and tidy. No, it's the same as it always is, man. There it is. Dr. Mark James Frizzo. Uh, He sent us an email in like 2018 and he was like, he's like, oh, I just wanted to say like, I like your podcast. Like he's in, um, his brother and him have a cabin in the central highlands of Tasmania and there he says, go. every time a brown or rainbow took the dry fly, my brother would exclaim, it's a tarpon, deluded fool. He's just talking about our, one of the tarpon episodes we did. 
But, um, <laughs> but man, yeah, he's like, yeah, and he's saying too, he's like, if you ever find yourself in New Zealand or Australia, let us know. We got to hit well, this guy one, up too, because that was, I, that one was day, a couple years ago. One day we'll, we'll, we'll get down there and spend, you know, Absolutely. a good amount of time down there. A cabin there. in the Tasmanian if I'm flying Islands. that, if I'm flying that far, I'm going to stay there for a while. You know, I'm going to stay there for a couple months. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll do like yeah. a whole month down there and like hit up oh, New yeah. Zealand and then. You know, it'd be cool because we fish for, well, me and Gab, anyway, fish for Yellowstone Cutthroat with Chloe. Yeah. It'd be kind of cool to like, if we did another trip with Chloe, then do a podcast with him about, um, talk all about the cutthroat. Oh, absolutely. That'd Yellowstone be Cutthroat, because That'd be super uh, cool. we have somebody who guides Yellowstone Cutthroat. 100%. I'm looking up right now just the Western Lakes in Tasmania. Um, I wanted to just Google image it, because the way he explained it, I was like, God, that sounds amazing. Yeah. And we'll, uh, you know, folks, we'll put all this in, in the show notes if you guys want to check out some of Greg's articles um, yeah, and his books as well. Um, and we'll do a couple posts on Instagram, too. So if you can oh, check out our Instagram, uh, at yeah. the SoFly Crew, you'll see some... Of these amazing photos that Greg's taken and sent us, uh, and they, they, if you're in Canada listening, or if you're, or if you're even just listening during a winter and you're kind of a little stir crazy, they will get you so jazzed, <laughs> you know, to go outside. I was like, oh man, like the trailer for Leviathan. There's like the scene where Greg like uh, catches this ridiculous brown trout it's and like a, a creek, ridiculous brown trout and it runs and the creek is like <laughs> as big as my table like it's oh. as wide as like my dining room table it looks it's like so he's tiny. like netting like a coho yeah like, <laughs> it looked like a steelhead with spots it was insane i was like yeah. okay that's a giant fish um yeah, wild. i really like talking to greg he was super cool i would definitely want to have super him on cool. again if he's down because yeah just i love he's you know he talked about um, advocacy and fighting for nature and stuff like yeah. that, you know, which is obviously we've been talking about so much. Like, um, it's uh, been a common theme in our, a couple of our podcasts now. It's like, what the dilemma of uh, is it a dilemma? Yeah, well, maybe not a dilemma, but like best way of of how do you tell people about a space to protect it with you know not having the adverse effect of it, that space being ruined, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's and like how do you inspire people? Yeah, how do you inspire people yeah, to... Yeah, I love that. He said how do you inspire people to, you know, enjoy a space yeah. while at the same time, you know, not... He said it, it absolutely perfectly. I never heard anyone say it. Give them the recipe. He's like, recipe. here's where you find fish. If you see yeah. that in nature, that's what you look for. Like, there, go look for it. Not like, here's the spot. Here is what you look for. And this is the recipe for how you do it. Now you go and do it, you know, make the mm -hmm. cake yourself. That's the perfect way to put it, you know? Like, it's right. Mm -hmm. Like, that's that's what... I think people, a lot of the people that post online and stuff like that, that's what they're doing. They're just giving people, yeah. you know, getting people fired up to go out and explore themselves. And I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I think that's great. Yeah, so, man. Like, uh, even from us, like, please go to Tomogamy. You yeah. try and figure it out. Yeah, we don't <laughs> know tell us. about <laughs> Yeah, And you can tell us how to catch fish. Tomogamy. Fuck, Tomogamy. I love um, fishing I can't wait to go fishing in Tomogamy. Oh, my God. Oh, I know it. These past two episodes with Rich and, and Greg have really got the wanderlust. Yeah, that's a great way to put time, it. You know, at like, an all-time oh. high. Like South, South Africa and then Tasmania. I'm like, okay. Oh and then when he was talking about fishing on the Rainbow Trout River by Machu Picchu, I was just like, God. What? I was like, that <laughs> would be so fun. That's the most ridiculously fun thing I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, <laughs> like, But like being stuck in that little town, um, that stuck. COVID, I mean, even just hearing about all that, I'm like, that sounds so fun i want to go do that right now like, well oh. when the world was shutting down mm -hmm. i was like and we were in tobago i was like well i guess i could 
I, I'll just get totally. really good at saltwater fishing and making roti. You cut yeah, a guy right. and a roti. Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. That's exactly, like, that's exactly what all those said. So like, roti. I was, like, I was like, if the worst comes to worst, yeah. I guess we'll just get really good at saltwater fishing. Oh my God, I know. <laughs> Honestly, can you and imagine? let's hope we don't run out of tippet. Being <laughs> no fly shops in Tobago. <laughs> well, that's right. Can you imagine? You guys would have to make your own. Like. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I would just start using like fishing, fishing line. Honestly, oh God, like. That would have been amazing. Getting stuck in Tobago would not be so bad. You almost family's down there. Like, no, my family's there. We, we can also had it. like it's we had sick. things like we had our laptops. We had like we could have continued our life there for a bit. It'd be so. Wild. I would have been. I missed that trip. I would have been so pissed <laughs> if you guys were just like <laughs> like lagooned in friggin' Tobago, and I'm just like <laughs> I'm like got in Toronto, just like okay, <laughs> God. <laughs> But then yeah. you went to your cottage, so yeah, that's true. Oh, never mind. No. That's that's true. That's I've true. never seen you so happy when you were working from your cottage, Mitch. I mean, I don't know how you can get happier than that, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Just, that's the happiest thing. You're in the just world. working at the cottage is so sick. Just working, yeah. air quotes, just working away at the cottage. <laughs> you were working. You're always online. <laughs> I know. I was always working too. But you know yeah. what? There's something, something not bad working when your feet are in a in a lake. You know, it's not yeah. bad. Um. Well, great podcast, guys. That was that was super fun. I really like talking to Greg. And, that was awesome. Thanks, yeah. thanks, Greg. And definitely yeah. check out his many books. There are many books. Some yeah, we'll post... fishy, some not so fishy. Um, yeah, we'll just you know, list them. check out his articles in Fly Life, and yeah, definitely check out Hatch and uh, Leviathan. They, you know, some of them, some of those, some of those videos were part of past F three Ts. You can probably find them that way, and YouTube, of course, and. Yeah, yeah, that was rad. That was I, great. I, I do want to give a couple thank yous and a couple just sort of shout outs right now. And whoa, yeah, I'm gonna give a couple thank yous. The first thank you is to Zoom. The first thank you is to Zoom because without Zoom, we wouldn't be able to chat to people like Greg across the like we literally were talking to someone. He's it's Sunday for him. It's Saturday night for us on the other side of the world, and it's like we're chatting about fishing. Like that's ridiculous, you know. So thanks mm -hmm. Zoom. You know, you need a thank you. Um, yeah, Zoom. Thank you, <laughs> Mitch. Can I add to Zoom? Everyone's gonna be like, "Are these guys sponsored by Zoom?" No, Mitch is just wasted. <laughs> Can you imagine if we we're sponsored thanks, by Zoom? Zoom. <laughs> uh, but the other yeah. thing I want to say was thanks, listeners, because uh, we do all these things over Zoom now, and uh, because of COVID. But so thanks for just you know, I know maybe the audio quality is not not always the best it can be, um, but we appreciate you sticking in there and and you know trekking through COVID with us. Uh, as soon as COVID's over, we'll be back in the studio and well, we'll still be doing calls over zoom cause it's badass, but we'll be back in the studio. So the audio quality will get better. Um, mm -hmm. Yuma's fire alarm won't be going off. Yeah, exactly. I know. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's okay, man. It's just life these days, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, fire alarm's had, going off. What was the other thing I was going to say? Dang it. I wrote them down and then I closed my document and I didn't save it, but it was uh, that. And then, uh, what? oh man, I can't remember what it was. The other thing I was going to say. What, thanks. like your, your thanks? Yeah, yeah. I had like another thing I wanted to say before like we signed off. Oh shit, I'm not yeah. I'm not recording this, any of this. Can you imagine? I was gonna do that to Greg. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I was gonna do that to Greg just to freak him out, but I was like, ah, oh, he's the internet's gonna chop out and he's just gonna be like, What? Like what the <laughs> You stupid idiots? Like it's like, all right, Greg, that was the dry run. Now we're going back to the top. Let's do that again. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh my god. Um uh. Yeah, I can't remember what the other thing I was gonna say was so when I remember. That's so, uh, It's always nice to get a. It's always nice that when you have a. Oh, sorry. No, no, go. I was just saying it's always nice when you have a, a guest who does all the talking for you. 
Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like he's just like and go. Like we yeah. had like we we have our little list of questions and like oh that's what it was. Know, I remember now. We have our little list of you know guiding questions and he's like answering them as he's going through his paragraphs of answers and I'm just like okay well I don't have to say anything. That's yeah, fine. and that's the best because that's what that's this is best. all about, right? Like taking yeah. ourselves out of this as much as possible and letting them speak. And actually, that reminded me of what I was going to say because uh, that's what Larry King said. How part of his interview styles and Larry King passed away today. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yes. I was like, holy shit. And I know he was, he was, you know, he was up there, but he was the king of interviews. I love He was the Larry King of interviews. Yes, he was, man. Oh my God. I want go check out his interview with, uh, George Strombo on the hour. Like he did an interview with him and it's, it's such a cool interview. I remember watching it years and years and years ago. And yeah, Larry King's one of my favorite interviewers. So oh, sad to hear that today, but, um, mm-hmm. Anyway, funny guy too. Many cameos funny. and many funny movies. Yeah, very, very um, cool guy. Well, this is February. This is coming out February first, so I hope everybody had a good uh, January. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Stay safe out there. Mm-hmm. Um, this is Stay our safe. this is our little PSA. Stay safe. Stay safe. Stay indoors. And uh, we'll catch you on the flippy flap. Um, thanks for listening. That- to the show. <laughs> <laughs> That's my new sign off. Catch you on the flippity flap. Uh, thanks everybody for listening to the show. Um, that's, it was a good one. Uh, that's it for me, Mitch Aldo. Bye everybody. Yelma. Thanks for listening, everyone. Take care. You can find all of SoFly's content at SoFly.ca. On Instagram, we're at the SoFly Crew. You can reach us at the SoFly Crew at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. On Facebook, we're SoFly, and our podcast is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.